It's the email you don't want to open, the text message you don't want to see, the phone call you hoped would never come. There's a pretty small gap between how good it feels to send an angry message and how bad it feels to get the response. You were right, which is to say that you were justified in sending that angry message, but sending it sure does feel a lot better than reading what we get in reply. I wonder how long we can manage to leave that email in our inbox unopened. There's a saying in sports that the game film never lies. The coach might not have seen you miss that block in real time, but when it's time for the team to sit down and look over the game film, you know that you won't be able to hide from your mistake. You might try to skip school that day or slip out of the locker room, the film room, when that play comes around, but no matter what, by the time you're back on the practice field, that coach will look at you and let you know that he knows what you know which is that you messed up. It's a lot harder to hide from our mistakes these days. A few decades ago, our worst fear was that a yearbook photo from our college days would make it out in public. But now it's every social engagement, every conversation, Every sophomoric political stance which is recorded for the whole world to see when we're all grown up. Who wants to relive everything they said or did in their teens or early 20s? Don't all of us want to hide, to hide from our worst moments, to hide even from our worst selves? Thankfully, God seems to have a different plan in mind for us. On their way through the wilderness, the people of God grew impatient. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness? The people complained at God and at Moses. For there is no food and no water, and our very selves detest this worthless, loathsome food to our core. We might not feel any blame to assign to those who were forced to live on manna and quail for years and years, but the irony of their complaint, that ungracious, unappreciative, faithless whining of God's people at the one who had saved them from slavery in Egypt and who had actually provided food and drink for them in the desert, that irony shouldn't be lost on us either. In response to their complaining, God did what God did. God sent poisonous serpents, fiery burning snakes, depending on your translation. God sent them among the people to bite them, and many of the people of Israel died. Who knows how many times God's people came upon a poisonous snake during their years wandering from Egypt toward the land of Canaan. But now that the Lord had withdrawn his protection from them, the people were in danger. 
the hardships of the wilderness from which God had sheltered God's people, even though they didn't appreciate it, those harms now turned against them. And the reaction from the people was as swift as it had been from God. We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you, the people said to Moses. Pray to the Lord to take these serpents away from us. As soon as they met the consequences of their faithlessness, the people of Israel repented, turned around, and tried to come back to the one who had brought them safely thus far. So Moses did what they asked him to do. Moses prayed on their behalf, but the answer he received is perhaps even more surprising than the judgment that God passed on those serpents. God said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. In other words, make an icon, make an idol of a fiery serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and hold it up where everyone can see so that those who look upon it will not die but will live. God commanded that God's people would be saved by gazing at the very symbol of their disobedience and punishment. The thing that had killed them would become not only a reminder of their failure, but a path for their renewal. Instead of commanding that the people would turn away from their sin, to leave it behind, never looking back, instead, God told Moses to put it on a pole, make sure that everyone could see it and live. Repentance, it seems, is not an effort to escape our sin, but to turn around and to go right back through it as we look for God. Centuries later, God's people would try to make sense of this strange episode in Numbers in a different book of the Bible, the Book of Wisdom. There, the ancients wrote about that bronze serpent, For when the terrible rage of wild animals came upon your people and they were being destroyed by the bites of writhing serpents, your wrath did not continue to the end. The people were troubled for a little while as a warning and received a symbol of deliverance to remind them of your law's command. For the one who turned toward it was saved not by the thing that was beheld, but by you, the Savior of all. God's people made sense of this passage when they told it, when they heard it, when they shared it with their children They understood that by looking upon that bronze serpent, the people were saved not by the poisonous snake, but by God, the Savior of all. That means that in order to return to God and to return to God's salvation, the people needed to search for God, not by turning away from their sin, but by turning back toward it and by looking for the merciful one who was staring back at them lovingly, from the other side. Doesn't that change the way we hear that familiar verse in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. 
How strange it seems, at least at first, that Jesus would compare his own death with that bronze serpent that was raised up in the wilderness. You might have noticed that usually when Christians quote from John chapter 3, they skip verses 14 and 15 about the bronze serpent and jump right ahead to John 3, 16, which we know so well. But if we stop and think about how God used that serpent on a stick to bring God's people back, the idea that the Son of Man would be lifted up in the exact same way begins to make sense to us. The cross of Christ shows us that we are saved not when we hide from our sin, but when we believe and trust that God's love is more powerful than our sin, that God's love is even bigger than our worst moments or our worst selves. Human beings have a hard time confronting the magnitude of their shortcomings. All of us would rather turn and hide from them. Why do you think we continue to face the plague of systemic sin like misogyny and racism? Who wants to turn around and look at that? Wouldn't we all rather hide and pretend that we aren't subject to that? And yet, how strange and beautiful it is for us to hear where true hope is to be found by staring that sin in the face. Think of all the ways we undermine the magnitude of God's saving love by pretending that God only loves us when we're good. We tell ourselves that good people go to heaven. And we convince ourselves that if that's the case, we'd better be good enough to squeeze through the pearly gates when it's our turn. Doesn't that make us want to hide from the truth? Doesn't that make us want to run away from our sin because we're worried when it's time we might not measure up? But believing in Jesus, believing in what Jesus tells us in John 3.16 means exactly the opposite. We look upon the one who was crucified on our behalf and there confront the fullness of our sin. We do so not to cower in shame or to hide in darkness. We do so to be reminded that we belong to the one whose love is bigger than our sin, whose mercy is greater than our faithlessness. Good people don't go to heaven because they're good. They go to heaven because of God's infinite goodness and mercy. And the same is true for sinners like you and me. We are not saved because we deserve it. We're saved despite the fact that we don't. That's the way God's love works. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus asks us to believe. And believing that is how we find eternal life.